Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a fortnightly podcast about all things IMD. The podcast has been up and running for a little over a year, and after a brief summer hiatus, it's great to be back with new content and to return to phenylketonuria, the topic that started this all off. This is episode number 32, so if you haven't already, be sure to check out our back catalogue and subscribe or follow to never miss an episode, but not before listening to our latest discussion on cognitive and psychosocial outcomes in adults with PKU. Well, hello there. I, I must say that it's always nice when authors return to the podcast. I hope it means that they enjoyed their first experience or at least didn't dislike it. And we're also returning to PK Year, which was the topic of our first podcast when Dr. Emma Vardy discussed the need for more work in adult PKU. And uh, here some is. Um, it's a privilege to welcome Dr. Elaine Murphy uh, and to welcome back Dr. Robin Lackman, both hailing from the Charles Dent Metabolic Unit in London, to talk about their work, long-term cognitive and psychosocial outcomes in adults with phenylketonuria. Robin and Elaine, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, there's obviously this perception that metabolic medicine is all about disorders of childhood, but an effective, albeit very challenging treatment for PKU has been available for over 60 years, meaning you've quite a cohort of early treated patients. I think it's fair to say that there isn't a clear consensus on outcomes in early treated disease. Is that right? I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I think actually there is quite a clear consensus on the outcomes themselves. We know that newborn screening and early treatment avoids late diagnosed PKU. And we no longer have a population of people with PKU who are institutionalized with low IQs and behavioral problems. We've completely changed the disease into something where if you look very hard at the patients who are really treated and you do detailed neuropsychological testing, you can detect subtle changes in a number of neuropsychological parameter. And if you do MRIs on them, you can see white matter changes, but actually it's very difficult to know what clinical consequences those have. And so we're left with a series of findings, which I think actually there's good consensus on. You know, everybody reports the same neuropsychological findings and the same MRI findings, which you might call residual PKU, if you like. But what there isn't consensus on is what they mean, how significant they are, um, whether they're actually these, these small changes in executive function, uh, in processing speed, how they relate to people's actual outcomes in terms of jobs and education and families and things. And that's one thing. And then the other thing which I think we don't have a lot of consensus on is what they're due to. So is what we're seeing now uh, the result of the fact that Adults tend to have higher phenylalanine levels than children, and therefore the response should be strict diet for life and bringing the levels down uh, much lower throughout life. Or are they actually related to things that happened much earlier on in life? And actually the levels uh, that people have in adulthood uh, have much less influence on actually the things we're measuring. So I think that's where the discussions, where the um, disagreements are. It's, it's not on what the phenotype is, it's on what its significance is, I think. Oh, sorry, I, well, I stand corrected then, but I, I, I mean, I, I think obviously one of the limitations thus far is about the size um, and the, perhaps the depth that some of the sort of uh, outcome work has gone into. So how did your approach differ from that? So we're fortunate in that we have a, a very long standing adult clinic, which was established in the early 1950s. So obviously over time, that's allowed us to gather together a very large cohort of adults with PKU. So we have um, just over 400 patients attending the clinic. All of them are over 16, the majority of them over 18 years. So we, we have some strength in numbers, 
we also have a broad range of metabolic control within our patient population, I would say. So we have a number of patients who are on diet and reaching current European recommendations for phenylalanine. So in other words, their average fee is less than 600 micromoles per litre. We have a number of patients who are completely off diet and following a completely normal unrestricted protein diet. And some of those have phenylalanine levels up to 2,000 micromoles per litre. And then we have everything in between. And of course, like most non-established adult services, we also have a number of late diagnosed patients who may or may not be on treatment. So we can cover a very broad range of, of metabolic phenotypes, as it were. And so we felt, you know, looking at our large patient population would allow us to begin to start to pick up any subtle differences that we might see. And to look at people, quite importantly, longitudinally. So we see this really as almost like a baseline study. We're looking at a snapshot of our patients now. And ideally, we might like to repeat the same studies that we've done this time around in 10 years or 20 years. And hopefully show that there's no progression in disease with time. But we're particularly keen that we, we look at tests that are actually reproducible in a clinic. So we didn't want to use a very extensive research battery of tests that take hours and are quite expensive and need a qualified neuropsychologist to do. So we were particularly keen that we would have something that could be easily reproducible in many countries and many adult clinics. Um, and there's been some fantastic work done already by the, the clinical neuropsychology groups looking at really extensive batteries of tests, but in much smaller numbers of patients. And so we could use that to decide or predict which areas of the psychological profile that we wanted to look at in our patients, but in a much shorter battery. So the cognitive battery that we use is only about 25 minutes long and doesn't need to be done by a psychologist. So with the patients you're looking at, you're saying it's nice to have a baseline for where your patients are now, but obviously you were looking at, you know, what their current fee control was like, but also what their fee levels have been like in childhood sort of in th across I think sort of several key areas it was below 8 8 to 12 12 to 18 and, and thereafter uh, and you, you... yeah I mean slightly different age groups than you mentioned so we we did an, a number of authors have done this now where you look at six monthly median six monthly fee throughout the entire lifespan of an individual and then you uh, summarize that data to get an index of dietary control so we then divided those in the states into, into four time points, early childhood, so not to six years, late childhood, six to 12, adolescence, 12 to 18, and then adulthood, above 18. And then alongside that, when the participants in the study came in to do their cognitive testing, we got a plasma phenylalanine measured on that day. So we have effectively five measurements for each participant. And although this is a cross-sectional study, we have all of that historical data on phenylalanine levels. So even with a cross-sectional study, because it's a large population, we can look across the whole of that population, which represents, as Elaine said, lots of different phenylalanine levels, not just at the time of testing, but also go back in time. So even with a cross-sectional study, you can start to make some links about phenylalanine control at different points in lifespan and on a population basis, how those relate to the outcomes we're seeing. And although you've used a, a test that you said you can administer within a clinic setting, you obviously check these patients across a host of different domains. The paper's there for people to read and it'll be available open access for four weeks after the podcast is released. Um, so I'd encourage people to go and to, to seek it out and have a look at those. But I wonder if you could perhaps highlight some of the most notable or maybe even surprising findings from your work. 
Um, okay, so we did, uh, like most researchers in PK, we effectively looked at two areas. We looked at psychosocial outcome and we looked at cognitive outcome. And our cognitive outcome findings, as Robin has already said, were really similar to what's already out there in the literature. So if we look at Zensel Gores, if we look at how individuals with PKU do in comparison to the norms of population and all the tests that we chose have got very good age stratified data, uh, we find that there are, are that the group as a whole have got deficits in some areas. It's important to note that it's not every patient with PKU. So the, the test in which we found most deficits was in, in, in processing speeds, so and processing speed of the group of participants with PKU was lower than that of the normative population. But even within that group, the majority of people had normal processing speed. So only 23% of participants had an impaired processing speed. So that was the most prominent finding in the, in the cognitive testing, very similar to what others have found. In the psychosocial testing, there's been various papers um, asking different questions, but broadly speaking, what we found was, again, commensurate what's already in the literature, that individuals with PKU, once they're early treated and well treated, have got the same educational outcome, the same occupational outcome, the same relationship outcomes as any other individuals in the general population. Um, and for that part of the study, we actually used controls taken from within patients' own families, so in general, a sibling or a relative, because we wanted to account for socioeconomic status um, in that part of the study. We also looked at some subgroups, and that's important, and we'll probably talk about that in a bit more detail. So there's about a third of patients in our clinic who are not on a formal uh, protein-restricted diet, so who've opted for various reasons to normalize their diet and not have a lower phenylalanine level. We wanted to look at, in particular, a difference between people who are on lifelong diet or who are currently, as we would say, off diet, so just on a normal, unrestricted diet. And again, we found no differences in psychosocial outcome between those two groups, either on diet or off diet at the time of testing. But an interesting finding, and again, has been seen in other papers, is that people who are partially adherent to diet, so who may be on or off diet or who are um, at different time points or who might be protein restricting but not taking supplements, their psychosocial outcomes were not as good as people who had chosen to be either on diet or off diet. And that's, that's an interesting finding. You know, it's been seen before. You can, there's a number of suppositions you can make as to why that might be, but it's been seen a couple of times now. So happier on, on diet or fully off diet, but if you're trying and not managing, that is the, the kind of the, the opposite of the Goldilocks position to take. Yeah, if you're struggling with diet, you're going to struggle with life. And one of the things I noticed when I was looking through it, so you obviously talked about you know, comparing these the index of dietary control between your, your your different age ranges, one of the things you noted. In some of the papers that look at PKU, they talk about mild, moderate, severe disease, largely based around the number of exchanges that are tolerated by, by different patients. Is that something that you looked at with this group or would you expect it to make a difference? We didn't really split it up like that. We were using phenylalanine levels as our output, um, and we weren't looking at the amount of protein restriction required to achieve those phenylalanine levels. And I think that's a reasonable approach because I don't personally think there's anything intrinsically uh, more damaging about having severe classical PKU than there is having hyperphenylalanemia if you can bring your phenylalanine levels down to the same point in both diseases. And I think that's probably borne out by the literature as well. So we were very much concentrating on phenylalanine levels per se, 
uh, rather than the, the, the genetic makeup, the genotype of the patient, if you like. It picks up another point, doesn't it? That, you know, we're, we're focusing on phenylalanine here. But of course, these individuals are not just about phenylalanine. They're about all the other genes that interact to determine their cognitive and neuropsychosocial profiles. And we haven't been able to take those into account, except in a very, uh, a very broad way by trying to match for socioeconomic status or age or, or gender. But we're really, you know, we're not looking at, at all the other factors that might impact in depth. And, and we recognize that. And it's likely that they're very important because what you can see when you're looking at fee levels is that there are patients who are off diet with phenylalanine levels consistently above 1500 throughout their teenage and adult life who score very well, who are you know, above average in all of the, the neurocognitive parameters we measure. And equally well, there are patients who've had good metabolic control throughout who remain on diet as adults who score lower. And that's entirely what you'd expect because it's a normal distribution. And I think one of the key take-homes of this paper, as opposed to how the data has been presented, perhaps, in some of the other papers, is to actually try and understand what we mean when we say that a significant number of people show neurocognitive impairment. Now, psychologists classify as impairment as being less than 1.5 standard deviations below the mean, but that already means that a significant population of the normal population have impairment. So go to the paper while it's on free access and look at figure two, because figure two, we've actually plotted out for the different neurocognitive tests, the distribution of the PKU population compared to the normal distribution with the Z scores. And you can actually see that the distributions are really, for the vast majority of them, extremely similar. Um, and it's really only processing speed where you can see that there is consistently a shift to the left. And I think that's a actually for the non-neuropsychologist, a, a very useful way of looking at the data. So 50% of patients with PKU actually scored within 1.5 standard deviations of the mean in all seven. So they showed no impairments at all. And you would only expect with a normal population. So you'd expect a third of people to have an impairment in at least one test because you're doing multiple tests. So for an individual test, you're expecting well, 6.68% if you want to be absolutely precise to have an impairment. But if we look at the group of seven tests overall, you're expecting about a third of people to have an impairment in at least one test. And the majority of participants who had an impairment, it was an impairment in only one or two tests. There was nobody who had an impairment in uh, five, six or seven tests, and nobody had an impairment in all the tests. I mean, just anecdotally, one of the participants who scored normally in all seven of the cognitive tests that we, we did had a pleasant phenol analine on the day of testing of 2,100. And, you know, we can all give you anecdotal tests, but you know what we what we saw is that not having a normal plasma phenylalanine level or not having a plasma phenylalanine le less than 600 microns per liter doesn't preclude you having a normal profile. The outcome data, as Elaine says, suggests that actually, as a clinically significant um, difference in Z score for most of these things, it doesn't actually seem to make much clinical difference uh, when you're measuring actual real outcomes in life. I think that's so important to differentiate between data outcomes and, and the actual reality of it, it, the results you see. It's interesting you mentioned about the sensitivity to phenylalanine levels because there was a poster at the 2019 SIM meeting and that was something they also observed was that there were some patients who had very good cognition scores in spite of these persistently elevated uh, phenylalanine levels. So do we expect different people to be sensitive to phenylalanine? Because you see anecdotally patients reporting feeling unwell almost, you know, in a day if they go um, astray. So I think that definitely lots of people are sensitive to changes in their phenylalanine level. 
I mean, you see that, for instance, with women going on to preconception diets, where sometimes they will bring their phenylalanine levels down very sharply uh, within a few days from what are really quite high levels to what are very low levels. And indeed, people, headache is very common. Uh, yeah, people don't necessarily feel great doing that. Uh, but once they've settled down, either at the high level or the lower level, those acuter symptoms go away, I think. And I think it's very difficult to, to pin down any individual thing that's associated with high phenylalanine levels, except perhaps processing speed, but you need a real longitudinal study before you can look at that. So you actually need an interventional study where you look at people with a high level and then you do something to bring their levels down and, and measure it again. And again, that population of women going on to preconception diet is the obvious population to measure. And we have quite a few of those, but it would take many, many years to get up to 150 patients. But we are you know, I are actively, along with collaborators, looking at that. And similarly, if you had a new treatment, you know, this is an ideal way of looking at outcomes from the treatment, so before and after. Okay. So, and I mean, finally, what I want to ask, and this might be perhaps the most controversial, maybe the simplest thing to answer, but this is a really Anglo-centric piece of work, but this is an international journal. Uh, the UK tries to follow the European guidelines for disease management. None of these patients were receiving BH4, uh, we're not even mentioning enzyme therapies. Given that the outcomes reported come from good early care, does this support the case for improved treatment options in childhood and even beyond? I think, along with other data that's coming out, actually, it makes it extremely clear that the key time, and we know this, the key time for controlling your phenylalanine levels is as soon after birth as you can for the first decade or maybe a bit more of life. And so, but actually the earlier, the more important in some ways. So we really should be trying to focus our efforts even more uh, on getting excellent control as early as we can. And of course, one of the problems with a number of the new and highly expensive uh, treatments that are coming out is that they're for adults. Um, so gene therapy is really only being considered for those over 16. Pegvalier's isn't designed for babies and small children either. Kuvan now can be given to um, people at all ages, but it's only an adjuvant to diet. So diet is still very much the mainstay of treatment with PKU. The outcomes we're looking for in our cohort of patients are all due diet, all right? Even in Europe and the States, they've only been using Kuvan for a small number of years now, so they can't report on what the outcomes of treating babies with Kuvan is in adulthood. Nobody knows that yet. Do we really think that there is something unique about Kuvan or Pegvalier's or gene therapy, apart from the fact that it brings your phenylalanine levels down? We know that bringing the phenylalanine levels down gives you normal outcomes. I think that's what the concentration should be on, not the way you do it. And the easier we could make that in early life, the better. Something that's going to come up, and so I'm going to mention it, is people are going to say, why did we use a general quality of life questionnaire and not a PKU-specific quality of life questionnaire um, in, in this paper? Um, and one of the main reasons being was we, really, we were actually not interested in looking at quality of life within people with PKU. We really wanted to compare it without, with the general population. But when it comes to new treatments, it will be really important to compare quality of life within patients with PKU, because what you might imagine is that if you are Kuvan responsive, it is much easier to take Kuvan 
than it is to follow a restricted protein diet and therefore your quality of life might improve because the burden of the PKU diet will be so much less. Or similarly with Pagvaliase, if you're having a significant burden from the diet, either because you're a caregiver or a parent trying to administer the diet to a child or because you're an older child or adolescent who finds the diet very burdensome, then you may well improve quality of life greatly with these new treatments. And so that will be very important to measure with very PKU-specific quality of life questionnaires or outcome measures. Um, but it may not improve overall quality of life because that's actually already very good and they're just you know, not sensitive to pick up that PKU-specific impact. And it may not improve cognitive control either because if we're, for most of these studies, we're already looking at people with very good and metabolic control in the early parts of childhood. So it's only later in childhood, adolescence, adulthood, where fee levels rise. Um, so there's lots, you know, there's lots more to do. And, and there's a lot of interesting stuff, I think, that will come through over the coming years with regard to that. But when you're developing quality of life schools specific to PKU, it's very important to remember that in doing that, you are very much amplifying the PKU-related things. So you definitely amplify the diet things. And you're right, when you have a standard quality of life score, you know, SF36, EQ5D, it isn't very sensitive to whether you're on a protein-restricted diet or not. So you undoubtedly will be able to develop scores where people with PKU show impairment compared to people without PKU if you develop a PKU-specific score. But you must keep that in context of the fact that when you look at big outcomes, education, jobs, family, what actually happens to you in life, there is no difference measurable uh, between the uh, screened and early and well-treated population with PKU and the general population. And I think that's an important take-home message, not just for us as doctors, but for parents who are being given a newborn screening result. Yeah, this is going to be tough. You're going to have to put your baby on a low-protein diet. It's going to require a lot of discipline on behalf of you and your child for a number of years, but it's worth it because the outcomes are now completely transformed for what they were before the days of newborn screening and dietary treatment. And as I said at the start, we do not see people with severe learning difficulties in institutional care by the time they're in their teens and staying there for the rest of their lives, which actually are a pretty normal lifespan. We don't see that devastating neurodegenerative disease anymore. And the outcomes are very good. You can expect your child to grow up, uh, to get qualifications, to go to university, have a job and have a family. And that's the big message for, for parents receiving that new blood spot result on, on day 10 or whenever it comes to them. Yeah, I think so. And we, and we don't underestimate the hard work that is involved in getting to that point. Um, but as Robin says, that that is why we are asking people to do that hard work, because we know that when that is done, the outcome is extremely good. Excellent. Well, thank you both. I think that's PKU wrapped up for another year, or at least until another great paper comes along. Um, if you'd like to read that paper, please go to the journal website and search for um, psychosocial outcomes in PKU. And if you want to hear more from Robin, then you can find his podcast on uh, treatments in lysosomal storage disorders and and his thoughts on the, the whole world of adult metabolic disease in general. And uh, Elaine and Robin, thank you both so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.